This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to the Check the Locks podcast. This is episode number two. Number two. Episode number two. Thank you guys for joining us. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the first episode, and that's why you're here for the second one. I am one of your hosts, John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Last week for our first episode... And actually, these two episodes are coming out together, so I don't know what I'm saying like last week. But our episode number one was on Paul Dennis Reed, Nashville's fast food killer. We have a brand new episode, a truly terrifying true crime case to go over today. Olivia, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, since you took it to Nashville, I'm taking it to Louisiana. And so today we're going to talk about Derek Todd Lee, who is also known as the Baton Rouge serial killer little side history of Louisiana. Baton Rouge is the capital. It's about an hour north of New Orleans where I live. And this crime actually happened in my lifetime um, when I was a teenager. So it's kind of cool to go back and reflect as an adult and read what exactly happened and how this case came to and to learn about Derek Todd Lee. Well, I am really excited. I know for me, it was a lot of fun researching the the Nashville case. You let me know who you were doing. I peaked a little bit. This is your case. So you're going to be walking me through it and I'm very excited for it. But just in like the little bit that I saw, I'm really looking forward to it. We can go ahead and jump in whenever you are ready. Go ahead and take it away. All right. So we're going to talk about Derek Todd Lee. Um, and these crimes took place in 2001. So I'm going to kind of go through 
each individual crime and then kind of reflect back on who he was and how his life came to be. So our first case, we're going to talk about Gina Wilson Green. So we're going to go to September 24th of 2001. Gina is a 40-year-old registered nurse who was living around the Baton Rouge area when she was found in her home, appeared to be strangled and raped. During the investigation, it was found that it appeared that there was no forced entry into her home. Her body was found in her bedroom, but it appeared that there was a big struggle that had started down the hallway as there was large stains throughout the walls and the floors, which was later determined to be fecal matter. Um, There was clumps of her hair and her earrings were found further down the hallway and then her shoes as well were in a different room. So this just kind of suggests that she put up a fight. You know, she fought till the end and was found in her room and appeared to have her throat slit as well. Okay, so details of this are horrific. The fecal matter is what I'm curious about because there's no signs of four century. So unless the suspect was already there and doing his thing, but it seems strange that that would happen during an attack. Yeah. I mean, who knows if it was his or hers or, you know, whose it was, but either he was hurting her so bad that she had to go to the bathroom or who who knows, who knows what came of all of this. You know, there's a big to do on the raping, you know, we don't know what kind of penetration was happening or what kind of weird stuff he was into, but this is just the first case. So then we fast forward to January of 2002. On January 14th, 2002, Gerilyn DeSoto, a 21-year-old female, she was a student studying to become an occupational therapist. So he seems to have so far, healthcare victims. She was planned to go to a job interview, but she never made it. The report suggests that around 12 p.m. on January 14th, someone had broken into her home and hit her with a telephone. And it appeared that she had had three stab wounds across her body and that there was a, an apparent handgun that was registered to Gerilyn. So it looked like she also tried to put up a fight. And then it seemed as though at the end, he was able to be successful and he cut her from ear to ear across the throat. So some of these are pretty gruesome. With the first two, it sounds like this is his preferred thing, which is strange. It makes you wonder like what kind of mind a person has where they can just do that. Yeah, he's breaking into these women's homes and they are obviously putting up a fight. And he obviously overturns them because he is probably a stronger man. And ultimately they lost their lives. So then we're going to go from January to May. So May 31st, Charlotte Pace, who is another 21-year-old female who is living around Baton Rouge, close to campus. She was in graduate school. And there's a little more details on Charlotte Pace because this is ultimately the case that leads us to an investigation. So Charlotte was leaving grad school when she stopped at a local car wash and there was evidence of her on cameras that she was at this car wash. And she was headed home to meet her roommate. And then her and her roommate were planning to drive to Alexandria, which is about two hours north of Baton Rouge, to go to a weekend wedding. When her roommate arrived home at about 2 p.m., she found Charlotte's body completely nude, laying on the floor between the bedroom door and her bed. She saw that there was blood all over the room, all over the furniture. Her bed was made, but the the comforter was soaked with blood. And then as she kind of went throughout the house, there was blood in the kitchen, in the hallway, all the way to the bedroom. So again, these women are putting up these fights. This one is probably the most brutal crime that he did. It appeared that she was stabbed more than 80 times and she was beaten with a clothes iron. Her throat was slit and she was also raped as well. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the fast food killer when we were talking about like overkill. 
aspect. Mm-hmm. Like that yeah. just seems like if you're going to stab somebody that many times, then beat them with an iron. It's definitely like what after the stabbing? Why does she need to continue to be beaten? Right. Or, or like, continue to be stabbed, vice versa. Yeah. Like what kind of rage do you have in you? Stabbing somebody like that alone is absolutely terrible. But then to have that kind of like monster inside you where you're like, no, I'm not done yet is fucking terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying. Absolutely. So then we're going to go from May 31st to July 9th. So he skips about a month of time. Maybe there was some stuff, some petty crime happening in between there. But this case is interesting because this is on Diane Alexander, who is a survivor. So Diane is a nurse again. And she was actually in Bro Bridge, which is about an hour or so west of Baton Rouge, kind of in a rural area. So on July 9th, 2002, Diane Alexander, who is also another young nurse, was attacked in her home. And so this lady was getting ready in the morning to go to work when a black man knocked on her door. He identified himself as a gentleman named Anthony trying to get to the Montgomery's house. So he had knocked on the door asking for directions. And when she said she didn't know who they were, he asked if she had a telephone and then he proceeded to ask if her husband would know who the Montgomery's were. She then told him that her husband was not home and at that time his demeanor changed. He forced his way into her house, overpowered her. He also tried to strangle her with like a telephone cord that he had cut from her house computer I guess back in the day when we still had dial-up internet. He had unplugged that telephone cord and was trying to strangle her. He also tried to rape her but was unsuccessful. What prompted him to stop was her son surprised came home and it scared the intruder away, Anthony, as we'll call him. But the son quickly got inside, recognized that there was this strange white pickup truck parked outside. They called 911, you know, got the police there and everything. So Diane Alexander, she did end up in the hospital and in critical care for a little while, but she ultimately was able to give an ID of this gentleman that came to her house. So she is the lone survivor of these poor women. About three days later, on July 12th, Pam Kenimore, who's a 44 year old mother. She's a wife. She owned an antique store. And so she was reported missing by her husband when he came home at about 1145 the night of July 12th. He saw that the bathtub was full of water. There was spots of blood on the bedroom rug and then just some disheveling of their bedroom furniture. And so what's interesting about this is that he reported her missing when her car was still at their business and she was nowhere to be found. He came home, saw everything was happening at home, and then, of course, got more worried and reported it. Then about three days later, on the 16th, they found a body on Whiskey Bay, which is off of I-10. So another geography is Baton Rouge and all these towns live right off of Interstate 10 that runs east to west across the lower half of the country. So again, they found her body just south of Whiskey Bay. And the interesting part about this is there was a piece of telephone cord found at this crime scene with Pam. And so if we go back to the one that happened three days prior with Diane Alexander was strangled by a telephone cord, you know, attempted strangling by the telephone cord. So now we're starting to develop a little bit of a case, but still no one knows who this is. And these murders are happening several days apart. So it's not even enough time for the police to really get a good case going. Yeah. And it's crazy because it seems like if you go back to to the first victim, Gina Wilson, that was September 24th of 2001 and then he waits like two or three months get, we get into january and then from january to may and then all of a sudden like he tries july 9th that doesn't work so he's now like it's almost like it's mission based where it's mm-hmm. this didn't happen on the 9th so now i have to find somebody to finish what i started so it seems like it's escalating and speeding up a little bit yeah and then the interesting part about pam's case is she was found not in her 
her home. They had to identify her with her dental records because she had been out in the, the heat of Louisiana in July. And so she wasn't really identifiable. She had also been sexually assaulted and her neck had been slashed. Why he took Pam out of her home is beyond me, you know? And then everybody else, he continued to just leave at home, but he chose to dump her body somewhere else. It makes you wonder if like maybe he was worried and that, you know, the son came home for Diane. So it makes you wonder if maybe there was still that fear. Somebody could come home. I need to get her out of here and let's right. go. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. I didn't think about that. So those are our biggest crimes. I'm going to kind of go into like how this case came to be developed. So there's a couple little key points like the telephone cord, Diane Alexander's son recognizing this white pickup truck. And so most of this started in Zachary, Louisiana, which is just a little bit north of Baton Rouge. The detective that we talk about in this case, the main one is based out of Zachary, Louisiana and not associated with the Baton Rouge Police Department. After the July murder of Pam Kennemore, the Zachary detective, Danny Mixon. He met with Baton Rouge police and he was raising concerns about this potential suspect named Derek Todd Lee. And so we'll go back a little bit and see why this detective was thinking that Mr. Lee was involved in all these heinous crimes. Derek Lee was born in November of 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana, which is basically Zachary, Louisiana. It's kind of north of Baton Rouge and St. Francisville is actually where our state penitentiary is, which is kind of interesting. Derek Lee was abused by his stepfather in school. He was in special ed classes and, you know, was picked on at school and then committed his first crime when he was 13. He was arrested for burglarizing and vandalizing a candy store and assaulting a woman in front of his mother at the age of 13. Again, he has a whole spree of crimes, misdemeanors and behavioral issues that again, just like our case from Mr. Reed, not so normal upbringing, abuse, trauma, things like that. Makes me wonder as we continue to go through and we look at different cases and things like that, if that is going to be something that we see pretty commonly, it definitely wouldn't surprise me. In the fast food killer case, it was the same thing, you know, troubled childhood issues with a family, committing crimes at an early age. It definitely makes you wonder if once we get to episode 100, how many of those cases are going to follow that same pattern. So. To touch base still on a little bit of his earlier crimes, first crime was at 13 in 1981. And then in 1984, he was arrested for suspicion of killing someone, but then was later released. And I couldn't find too many details about who this was. But in 1984, he would have only been 16 years old, so young to be considered a murderer at that time. And then sometime around then, he set his car on fire for insurance money. In 1988, he was arrested for attempted robbery, but the charges were reduced and he was just released. So then he had multiple arrests, if you look at his track record. Multiple arrests for peeping, like a peeping Tom, battery, burglary, and then he had that one attempted murder. You know, all those kind of happened in the late 80s. And then in the early 90s, um, in 1993, he is watching this couple making out in their vehicle outside a cemetery. And he approaches and stabs these two teens in their truck outside of a cemetery. But a cop had showed up. And so he kind of fled the scene then and was never captured. And the teens survived. And that's why you don't make out outside of a cemetery. Cemetery. I mean, I guess it's a Louisiana thing. I mean, I can't say that that's ever happened to me. But down in the South, there's a lot of cemeteries. So what I'm hearing you say is you've made out <laughs> with people in front of a lot of cemeteries when someone Absolutely. says i can't say that's never happened to me that means it's definitely happened to them no but i could see like there's cemeteries everywhere, everywhere. you can live across the street from a cemetery like no big deal yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense in tennessee it's sonics so there's just, <laughs> you know it's either sonic or dollar general 
Like, oh yeah, we we got a lot of the dollar stores and stuff. There's kids making out in front of Dollar Generals all over the South. So now we're going to get into 1995, where he is arrested in Lake Charles. Now, Lake Charles is far. And I also didn't do a lot of research on like what Derek Lee did for a living, how he ended up in all these different towns. But Lake Charles is far from Baton Rouge. It's probably three hours or so. And so he was charged for peeping and he was fined $200 and had two years of unsupervised probation. So we're starting to see a pattern here. 1997, there's multiple reports in this neighborhood in Baton Rouge of someone who's trespassing and peeping. He was caught and fined $400 and again, placed on probation. Here, it sounds like the law enforcement is just seeing this behavior and just finding him and putting him on probation. Nothing to do. Just letting him be. It's normal just to stare at women while they're doing things in their home. It also makes you wonder too, and I don't know, you know, I don't want to spoil anything if you're going to get to it a little bit later on, but like starting with something like peeping Tom activity or something like that, like with Diane for example like had he been watching her did right did he know to ask if your husband was home because he knew her husband she wasn't husband. home or yeah right. right it's kind of like what we talked about in the the first episode but it's like patterns of behavior that you can see are escalating and are going to lead to something else it's crazy it's crazy that it was only four hundred dollars and don't yeah, do no it big again deal. Just don't do it again. It's fine. Right. But then I think the interesting thing is, so that the last one where he was fined for $400 and placed on two years of probation, this one was city court probation. So I guess you have more supervision. So that was July 97. Well, then in 1998, we meet Randy, who is a 28-year-old female, and she was snatched from her home while her three-year-old child was sleeping. When the detectives came inside, they saw that she was attacked in her bedroom. There was blood lining the hallways as it was in various cases that have happened after this. This is something that has happened that I don't think has been 100% proved that it was him. And I could be wrong. But again, attack on a young woman. It means that we need to say, because I'm not sure what kind of implications there are with a podcast, speculation, but it seems like it meets that same MO. Yeah, and this happened before our first murder of Gina, because Gina's murder was in 2001. So this is a case of a missing woman in 1998. So I think what's interesting about this is she was abducted from her home. There was evidence of a struggle, blood all over the hallway. And the interesting part is they found her contact lenses, both of her contact lenses along the hallway, inches apart. Like he had hit her so hard that both of her contact lenses had come out of her eyes. Jesus. Which that's just horrific to me. That's, yeah, um, that's terrifying. This case, they found more evidence. There was some pink trash bags, I guess, that she had had. And on these this roll of pink trash bags they had found in her carport, they said it looked as though once she was taken from the hallway, it appeared that someone had picked her up and moved her. And so it was like, I guess the evidence kind of fizzled out. Well, then they found these plastic bags and one of the bags had had drops of blood and traces of semen on it. So that suggests that there was a fight another bloody battle and sexual assault. But unfortunately, Randy's body was never found. So there's no physical evidence from her or DNA at that point to match DNA of him to her, you know. Right. But this all happened before our first official murder in 2001. Yeah, and if it was him, I think it kind of fits in to, and again, speculation. But yeah, if, it, if it was him, that would kind of fit into the idea that it's escalating. This was done in 98. He's able to hold yeah. off. Because from what I understand from watching all the messed up stuff that I watch, somebody will do something like that and then they're able to hold on to the memory, kind of relive it. And then eventually the memory doesn't do it anymore. And that's where you have to go out and do it again. Which is where we're getting. Right. Somebody doing drugs for the first time like that. Hey, I did it. Ah, oh, wait a while, I'll do it. And then eventually you're just like, oh, yeah, fucking love drugs. I'm going to do drugs all the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
Yeah. So, okay. So then Randy goes missing in 1998 and then we flash to 1999. So this is about a year after Randy has disappeared. Still no evidence of her body. Mr. Derek Todd Lee gets picked up for peeping again. And guess what? He is fined for $300 and two more years of probation. See, that's crazy to me that it's less the second time. Like, hey, I know your times are tough. I'll give you a $100, like $100 break. But you could still have two years of probation. It's fine. It's like your so 10 this, peeping is free. <laughs> oh, right. Like, keep peeping. Keep peeping. It's right. fine. At this point, from what I can find, Randy's case is a cold case. Never solved. It's 1999. It's been a year since she's been missing. And this man continues to get picked up for peeping. So in 2000, Derek Todd Lee is arrested and sent to prison for nine months after he beats his girlfriend at a bar and attempts to run over the deputy who is there trying to like resolve the situation and he was trying to flee the scene. So for nine months in 2000, he is in prison. But then he's released in January of 2001. By September of 2001, multiple bodies begin to show up around the Baton Rouge area. And that is when Gina Wilson-Green is our first victim in September of 2001. So it seems like Mr. Lee here is a little peeping Tom who kind of had a rough upbringing. But it's interesting that in 1998, this woman just appears to be kidnapped and disappeared. Very similar fight, bloody mess, sexual assault, very similar to all its other cases. And then he goes back to peeping. Well, and the fact that when he's arrested, he's arrested for beating up his girlfriend, which shows you that like he has no moral qualms about hitting a woman or anything like that. So it's just like an, an indicator of what kind of person he is at baseline. Yeah. You know, if it's your girlfriend or your wife or something like that, somebody you're supposed to care about. So if you'll do that to somebody that you care about, like you'll what do, do you that do? To anything right. to anybody that right. you don't know. And this is obviously a case that is well known to the public. So I think it's interesting as I remember it, I guess in early 2000s, I was in early high school, I think. And so this was happening on the news and you were hearing about it. My sister was going off to college and my mom, I remember, wouldn't let her go to LSU because all these crimes, these young women were getting murdered around the Baton Rouge area, you know, so things like this hindered where my sister went to college, you know. And so I just remember them like kind of talking about this guy as he was like a family man. But I just don't see it. I mean, he was arrested for beating his girlfriend. He, of course, had been married before and had had a son. He got married, I think, in 1988. And it just says that their marriage was strained because of abuse. So he's had this whole track record of issues with women and abuse to women. So it'd be interesting to see, like, how he was abused by his stepdad. You know, did his stepdad abuse his mother? Like, you would think someone who was abused by a man would be more focused on hurting men and less likely on hurting women. Does that make sense? Yeah. The only thing that I can think is that maybe, and again, you know, again, this is the first time I'm, I'm really getting into the details of this, but I wonder if it's, he was abused by his stepfather. So he was left to feel powerless. So he is now, how can I make someone feel the way that I felt? Obviously these women, women fought, I would imagine as like a, cause I've, I did see a picture of him. It looks like he was, you know, he wasn't a small guy. So oh, when it no, comes to like overpowering, right. Then he's kind of got the, the upper hand. It's easier to be like, okay, now, you know, you're the one without the power. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've kind of talked about these earlier crimes, our last murder was Pam on July 12th of 2002. 
So I go back to this detective, Danny Mixon. So in July of 2002, he meets with the Baton Rouge police officials. And he's like, hey, we have this local peeping Tom named Derek Todd Lee. And I have high suspicion that he could be part of what's happening in Baton Rouge. You know, he's got this whole track record under their police department of peeping on women. When he was 13, he assaulted a woman. I mean, like he's got this whole track record going on. But somehow in the Baton Rouge police department, they were all convinced that this was a white male, that the FBI profile pushed towards a white male. And so they were like, this is a black man. And we aren't convinced that this is our serial killer. And so I think it kind of just frustrated this detective, Detective Mixon on like, I have a huge suspicion that this person is committing all these crimes. While all this is taking place, they're getting DNA samples from hundreds of white males. They're trying to investigate these white males. And sometime during all of this, this is when that white pickup truck comes back into play. So remember Diane Alexander, she's the survivor. Her son recognized this white pickup truck that was not normal to their neighborhood. This pickup truck comes back into play again on July 14th. On July 12th is when Pam was murdered. On July 14th, two days later, there's a woman in Mississippi who's 28 who was coerced into a vehicle off of I-10 yet again. So it seems like he's just going up and down I-10 trying to find his quick victims. And she was raped and let go. She was able to give like a witness and they were able to sketch. And this white pickup truck was listed again. Now, this white pickup truck's only coming from the two cases now that have surviving women. Right. So I guess they just kind of throw it under no big deal. These women are survived. They're raped, attacked, whatever. It's not the same thing is how I'm assuming the Baton Rouge Police Department are taking it. Well, yeah, because one of them was like very clear that he attempted to murder her. And then the other one was he raped her and then was like, you can go now. But still, it blows my mind that like, okay, yeah, they're different in that aspect, but it's a white pickup truck. There's sexual assault. And you're like, not the guy that we want. The race aspect of it is very interesting to me. You sent me the picture of the book that you have that has like the most prolific serial killers of like the last hundred years in it. I guarantee like 97% of them are white men. Oh, yeah. So it's, there is some like historical ground that, okay, statistically probably not the person that we're looking for, but to let that kind of get in front of potential evidence, which it seems like it may have done is, is a little weird to me. Yeah. I almost wonder what was in the FBI. All it says was the FBI profile is what pushed Baton Rouge police to think that it was a white male. I almost wonder what is in there that made them just like, Nope, we're just going to discredit this man altogether. He's not what we're looking for. Right. Because they only now have two identifications and one was of Diane Alexander. The sketch was released, a sketch of the man who broke in, Anthony, quote unquote, who broke into Diane's house was a sketch of a black male. So now we have the black male coming into picture. And then we have the raping of the lady in Mississippi who witnessed a black male. Okay, so now we're we're getting somewhere. Okay, so this all is happening in the summertime. So then around November, we strike again. So on November 21st, this is another cemetery. See, cemeteries are just a thing in Louisiana. So Trenisha was visiting her mother's grave site in St. Landry's Parish, which is kind of still in the same vicinity of where we are around Baton Rouge. She disappeared. Her car was found at the cemetery, but her body was found three days later. Interesting enough, it was found in the woods about 20 miles away and she was beaten to death. 
So at this point, the DNA has already been started to get collected from some of what the killer has left behind. And so they were able to collect DNA from Trinisha's body and positively relate it to Gina Wilson-Green, Charlotte Pace, and Pam Kennemore. So now they're starting to put two and two together. They've collected all these DNA samples from these crime scenes of these women who are murdered. We now have two women who have identified this black male who has sexually assaulted them. So I feel like we're kind of getting a case here. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think you can have the feeling that it's like a a serial killer. But then when you've got the DNA from three different crime scenes, this is all from the same person then you know, okay, for a fact, I'm looking for one person. It's not like these are just, yeah, like crazy coincidental. Unfortunately, I'm sure that there's attacks on women all the time that that looks similar, but it's not the same. A lot of men are pieces of shit. I'm sure there's a lot of domestic stuff that looks similar, but they were probably like, now we know for a fact, like we have to find this guy. This guy, yeah. So here's another kicker. So, so then there's reports that a lot of tips are being reported to the Baton Rouge police. So you remember Baton Rouge police is the one who's looking for this white male. Detective Mixon is the guy in Zachary who's convinced that this person is Derek Todd Lee. So multiple tips are poured into the Baton Rouge police of a white male driving a pickup truck. So they continue to focus on white males who drive pickup trucks in the area. And I just had to laugh for a minute because... If you did a survey of how many men drove pickup trucks in Louisiana alone, it's probably almost every man. Oh yeah, I'm in Tennessee. So it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm the like I'm the odd guy out, you know, my my father-in-law, my like my like you know, everybody's got one. I've got a little Nissan Rogue I jet around town in, but you're a family guy now. It's okay. It, yeah, it's like that's every that's almost every man. How are you going to figure out who it is? Every my every white male who drives a white pickup truck. Right, we think it's a white male who likes beer in Boston. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's hard. It's like okay, needle in a haystack. Right. We're figure it out. So Trinisha was the last murder in November, and she was the DNA linked her to the other murder. So at this point, we're looking for a serial killer. We just don't know who is he. Is he a white male? Is he a black male? One detective thinks one thing. One police force thinks another. So in March of 2003, Carrie Lynn Yoder is a 26-year-old grad student who was living close to the campus of LSU, which is in Baton Rouge. And she was abducted while she was unloading her groceries at her house. Her body was found 10 days later in the same Whiskey Bay area where I believe... Who was found by Whiskey Bay? Pam, Pam Kennemore. Yeah, Kennemore. Yeah, Pam was found by Whiskey Bay. Yeah. Okay, Carrie Lynn. She was found 10 days later in March of 2003. She was found by a crawfish farmer, of all people. But her body was floating in Whiskey Bay about a mile and a half from where Pam's body was found. And again, Carrie was beaten and strangled. The autopsy reports found that she had multiple broken ribs, a lacerated liver from blows to the body. And she, like other victims, were raped. DNA again linked this murder of Carrie in March of 2003 to the other women that we have the DNA samples. So again, we're looking for the same person. We just have no idea who he is. So then in April of 2003, the Zachary Police Department, which has Detective Mixon associated with it, kept getting multiple complaints from a woman who lived in this Oak Shadow subdivision. And if you read through the nitty gritty and all the details, there's a lot of things that happened in this Oak Shadow subdivision. So I don't know if that's actually in the, the neighborhood where Derek Toddley lived, but that neighborhood is where all those peepings were happening. So I don't know if it was his neighborhood or just the neighborhood which he chose to stalk these Yeah, women. like at the very least, it was a neighborhood that he felt comfortable in. Right. Like someplace where he's like, I know like the layout. Yeah. 
they're only going to find me 25 cents. I'll just hang out here, you know? Right. So this woman was reporting that she felt like she was being stalked during her morning jogs. So she felt that someone was following her. The police came out to her house. They found these boot footprints outside the window. So it's obvious that this peeping Tom was peeping again in Zachary and peeping in on this woman. And so we bring back Danny Mixon, who is still has and has been focused on Derek Todd Lee being the peeping Tom, now thinking he's the serial killer in Baton Rouge. He decided to do a little investigation. He followed everything that was happening on the news and went back to look to see if Derek Todd Lee was in prison during the times of these murders. Coincidentally, Derek Todd Lee was a free man when everybody was being murdered. And I'm guessing in that nine months that he was locked up, there was probably nothing in that area with that M.O. It's quiet. It's loud, quiet, loud. You know what I mean? Yeah, there was probably no peeping Toms in those nine months. And then that's when it seems that instead of peeping, he was going on these killing sprees. Detective Mixon put in an application and like filed it with the judge so that he could subpoena Derek Todd Lee to get a DNA swab. Because the only thing that we're missing now is DNA from Derek Todd Lee. So if we can get his DNA, see if it matches these of the victims, then hey, we got a serial killer. The last peeping was in April. By the time May rolls around, so just a month later, Derek Lee was approached by investigators from the Zachary Police Department. He puts up a big argument, doesn't want to give a DNA sample. They bring him inside the house and they eventually get his saliva swab And they sent it to the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab to determine if he is the serial killer. It takes about 20 days because on May 25th of 2003, the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab produced the DNA results. And it did confirm that Derek Todd Lee was the Baton Rouge serial killer. Yeah. So by the time. Yeah. So in these 20 days that we're waiting for this DNA to come back, where do you think Derek Todd Lee goes? He's either peeping or killing. He's... (laughs) Because I'm sure at that point he's like, they've got my DNA, so I neither get out of town or get it out of my system. Because you would have to think, like, my days are numbered. Also, I can't imagine being that detective and being like, I I know know it's him. It's him. And, like, why aren't you listening? Yeah. And if you go and read some of the stuff, it just seems like he's so frustrated. But, of course, I'm reading one one sense of data that I got was like stated from the Zachary police department. And then if you read the other version from the Baton Rouge police department, you know, it's a whole, he said, she said thing. Right. But I mean, when you have this person who's committing all these peepings and then you have a few that are just kind of like, okay, there's one body's not been found. And then two women, he just rapes and lets go. Like, why did he let those women go? You know? And why did he choose to kill these other ones in such heinous ways, you know, like torturing them. But anyways, Derek Todd Lee, he fled, and took his self to Chicago and ultimately ended up in Atlanta where he was caught by the U.S. Marshals. He only, sadly, from what I could find, it looked like he was only convicted of two of the murders. He got first-degree murder charge with Charlotte Pace. She was found by her roommate? Her roommate that was stabbed 80 times. Um, So he got a sentence of first-degree murder for her. And then what else I could find was second-degree murder of Gerilyn DeSoto, and Gerilyn was attacked, and it looked like she had broken into her home. She had happened right before in January. So it looked like the murders in January of 2002 and then the May 31st, 2002 murders were the two that he was charged with. Why? And I'm sure if I went down and read more of the investigation, I could figure out that he was probably charged with some other stuff, too. 
but he was sentenced to death in December of 2004, and he was put on death row at our state penitentiary. It's called Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana. And oddly enough, like I mentioned, that state penitentiary is in St. Francisville, where Derek Lee Todd was from. So it was like full circle, like you started your mm-hmm. shitty life here and then you made all these people miserable and did all these terrible things. And now you're right back, where right back to where you started. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually in 2004, after he was sentenced, the crime lab was able to compare the DNA of Lee to the killer of Randy. Randy is our one of our first victims in 1998. She was the one that was abducted from her home while her son was sleeping, that they never found her body. I guess there was DNA from her home that they were able to compare to Derek Toddley. And so they were able to say that he was involved in the abduction, 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 abduction. Um, and killing or disappearance of Randy. He sat on death row until January of 2015 when he died at a local hospital of heart disease. So again, it's another one of those cases where you're sitting on death row like the fast food killer waiting for lethal injection and you die because karma came around and smacked you in the face. Yeah, the universe was just like, I'm going to pull your heart. I don't know. That's that's crazy. I will say I'm not personally someone who's like pro death penalty because I don't. Yeah, I don't feel like the way to punish someone for taking a life is to take their life. However, I do think it's, you know, we said karma where it's like that had to be the universe being like, you didn't live too well, buddy. So like we're going to. Right. And we're trying to keep we're also trying to keep our podcast very light and not so gory. But some of the details that I read during this is just sickening. You know, it's to the point where it's like. There was an MO against these women and the things that he did to these women and the ones that fought and survived like as a woman, a young woman living a single life. It's a scary world out there. And so if we're going to go talk about how on a scale of zero to 10, how bad would I go check my locks with this one? Yeah, I mean, let's do it. Let's do the deadbolt test for people who are listening. The deadbolt test scale of one to 10. Listen, after we broke down the story, after we listened to what Derek Todd Lee did, how likely are we to check our locks before we go to sleep? Are we going to be sleeping soundly? And Olivia, uh, it sounds like you have some strong opinions about this. So I'm going to let I'm not going to let you. You are a woman with agency. You go first. Okay. I mean, uh, there's a lot of similar comparisons here. This happened when I was in high school. So of course, at that time, you know, I heard about it, didn't think too much of it. It wasn't happening in my area. So I wasn't concerned about the Baton Rouge serial killer coming all the way up to Bossier City to, to murder me. But now living in New Orleans as a single gal in my early 30s in healthcare and close to these women's age, like it's a scary world. And these are the things that I sit here at home and I can't sleep over. You know, when you're watching that first 48 or, you know, the one that hits close to home, I'm going to give this one, I'm going to give this one a nine. It is 100% understandable for me. Maybe it is because I am of the male persuasion. But when I hear things like this, it is deeply disturbing, but then there's that sense of like, okay, he was attacking women for a reason. So that personal sense of fear isn't there, but as a husband, as a father, like I will tell you, our blinds are closed all the time. People probably think we're slinging drugs or something out of our house because our blinds are always closed. You know, there's weirdos out there. So um, heck yeah, I do that. I mean, I live here alone, you know, so I, I always make sure that my, my shades are closed. My curtains are closed. I don't need anybody peeping in on me. 
(laughs) I already feel a sense of insecurity and I've always kind of felt that way, you know, but I've been interested in crime for so long that there would be times when I lived at my parents' house and my parents would be gone for the weekend and I would be afraid to take a shower. Mm -hmm. Like I would literally be afraid to get in the shower during the daytime when no one was home. So I've always kind of had that like extra thought in the back of my head, like, what if somebody breaks in while I'm in the shower? What if I have soap in my eyes and I can't see who they are? And you go down this whole rabbit hole. So this one hits close to home for me. And this one makes me check the locks a lot. You know, I'm going to get up a couple times tonight and probably make sure that that front door is locked. For me, and I'm the guy too, that's like, I lock the shower door. Like if I'm home by myself, it's the flimsiest door ever, but it's like that extra layer. My goal in my life is to have a glass shower door. So that way I don't have to be like, what's Listen. back there? I've always been the person, even in people's houses, sorry to all those people whose houses I've gone to, but if you have a shower curtain and I'm like there alone or whatever, I'm a hundred percent checking what's behind the shower curtain. Now I have a glass shower, so it's all fine and dandy, but I grew up with, I have a little syncope as a child. And so I grew up in a household where I was not allowed to lock my bathroom door to take a shower. So my mom said, if you're going to pass out and you lock the door, I'm not able to get into you. Shout out to mom. That's a habit I've developed as an adult is I still don't lock the shower door. I don't even shut the door when I take a shower just because in the back of my mind, like I'd rather see them coming than like have them beat down the door. Cause what am I going to do with them in the bathroom? At least if the door's open, have a chance to escape. Now you get that. Well, see, that is your disadvantage now that you have a glass shower. For me, <laughs> it's shower rod. You grab the shower rod, and then you're, and if you've got the kind of twist together, then you've got two of them. So you're coming at them like, hey, I got the rubber squeegee I can get after go. them with. <laughs> yeah. For me, this would probably be like a six or a seven because my whole thing is like, because he was attacking women, it's, it's hard for me to put myself in that mind space. But I think about, again, kind of like we we're talking about with the, the fast food killer. When my daughter's 16, I'm probably going to be like, close the blinds. All the time, you know, like the doors are always locked. We have a security system, security cameras, everything like that. So I'm like, I'm prepared, but it doesn't hit in that way where I would be like, oh, something bad is going to happen to me. For me, it'd be a six or seven. But as far as whether this dude was a piece of shit or not, that's a a hundred on a scale of one to 10 for sure. (laughs) Awesome. We did it. That's episode two, whole case. I loved it. I am thoroughly creeped out. I feel educated. And thank you so much for sharing this case. And guys, girls, whoever, we want to hear what you think. Where are you on the deadbolt test? Are you a one? Are you a 10? Are you five, six, whatever? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at check the locks pod. We're on Twitter at check the locks. You can join our Facebook group. Just check the locks on Facebook and we can talk through these cases. If you want to share any information, also check out our website, Olivia, we have a store. So what? yeah, we have a store. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs and stickers We got all sorts of cool stuff. And please leave us a five-star review. Episodes one and two have come out together. So starting with the rest of the episodes, if you leave us a five-star review, we're going to read one of those reviews on the show. We're going to send you a sticker, something fun, something cool. We love giving out merch. You know, we have, uh, it's not out there. We have wall clocks. We have check the locks clocks. Oh, I need one of those for my office. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've been holding them off because I, I was like, if we do like a cool raffle or something, I think it would be something That'd fun be to cool send one. somebody. So, yeah. but yeah, just want to say thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. We look forward to next week where we can tell you another spooky story that'll make you check the locks. That's all we got. Olivia, you have anything to close out on? I'm going to check my deadbolt right now. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it. Episode number two. We will see you guys for the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.